Our passage this morning is from Matthew 12, 38 through 43, and that is going to be on page 817 of your house Bible. So if you would follow along with me, you can stand and I will read. And again, that's Matthew 12, 38 through 43 on page 817. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here." Aaron Ferguson is our pastor of discipleship and development, so I'm going to invite him up, um, and I will pray for him. Father, I pray you would um, just be with Aaron this morning as he preaches from your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work through him, that it would open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive your word. May we be transformed by the gospel into your likeness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you. Oh, good morning, church. So good to see y'all. I wrote in the top of my sermon, like, don't make a corny joke about how it's been a whole year since I've seen you guys. Um, but there's like so many people that I like, oh man, I haven't seen them since before Christmas. Like, I want to talk to you. So uh, if you're one of those people, don't leave until I get to talk to you after the gathering today. <laughs> um, I hope you all had as much fun of a holiday week as I did. Uh, I got to celebrate our first Christmas with a new baby. Tried as hard as I could to stay up till midnight uh, and ring in the new year. It only took me like two or three short naps in the evening to make it there. Uh, and then, most importantly, I got to see our beloved Missouri Tigers take down Ohio State in the Cotton Bowl to cap off one of the school's best seasons. And now there are two kinds of fans in the world. And church, if you know your pastors well, then you know that Pastor Kevin and I represent opposite poles of fandom. Pastor Kevin is a very positive, loving, kind of a Pollyanna fan. The eternal optimist, all the players on his favorite team are incredible talents. The star player can do no wrong. None of them ever get enough respect in the national media. Every catch is a big catch. All the coaches ever need is just a little bit more time to get things going. Me, on the other hand, I am uh, I'm a downer Dan, you know, the eternal pessimist. I always want to see the underperforming player get benched or cut. I'm always phoning it in and waiting for next year's recruiting class, next year's draft, next year's free agent. Oh, you dropped a pass? Well, it must be because you're not very good or you're too old to play, or you don't know the playbook. I always want to see the backups get a few reps. I think that the coach is always on the hot seat. Kevin says I'm too hard on the players that I root for. But I just really resonate with this quote from uh, Brad Thompson, World Series St. Louis Cardinals pitcher. He said, don't like it? Play better. 
Now, I'll be honest with you. Here's a little bit of accountability on my end. At the beginning of this football season, I did not want Brady Cook to be the quarterback. I was not that impressed with running back Cody Schrader. And if the team wasn't doing so hot, I was going to want to run Coach Drink out of town. And even as I was doing some post-game analysis with my dad after the bowl game, I told him, like, I know we won, like, 11 games, and we just beat Ohio State, but, like, still don't feel like I know if this is a good team or not. But here's what I'll tell you. That's why I told Kevin most of the weeks after we get into the office and talk sports. I'm from Missouri. They're going to have to show me, because, you know, that's our state motto. We're the show-me state. And uh, it's that concept that has been attached to, that the teams have latched onto the last few years. You know, a couple years ago, it was just like, you know, Mizzou football, hashtag, show me. And then this year, it was kind of similar. The ethos was STP, something to prove. They didn't have a lot of respect going into the season, but they're out to prove all the doubters and the naysayers wrong. And as we look into our passage this morning... I see the same mindset. If my spirituality and my sports fandom were the exact same thing, uh, it would be pretty clear that I would be one of the Pharisees in this passage. They're incredulous and they're arrogant. They approach Jesus and they demand a sign. They say, I'm paraphrasing the you know, guy who originally coined the phrase, show me state. We come from a region that catches fish and harvests figs. Frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies us. We're from Galilee. You're going to have to show us. Now, before we dive into the depths of our passage, let's take a step back. Because as much as I love the Advent season and the Christmas season, it means that we've been out of our Matthew sermon series for about six weeks now. So where do we leave off? And how does what came before lead us into our passage today? Well, if you remember, the most recent action event was that Jesus freed a man from demonic oppression, demonic oppression that was causing him to be blind and mute. Jesus uh, cast the demon out, the man is set free, the crowds see this miracle and they start to wonder, like, could this be God's chosen king? Is this the Messiah? And the Pharisees, they don't want to let a rumor like that gain any traction, And so they're quick to jump on that and say, uh, no, Jesus is not acting on behalf of God. He's not working by the power of the Holy Spirit. Rather, he's in league with the devil, and he's using demonic power. They swing the pendulum all the way to the other side. From there, Jesus has a sharp warning and criticism for the Pharisees, including teachings on blasphemy and about the advance of God. God's kingdom, and how the Pharisees are going to be judged for what they say. Our passage today comes near the end of this interaction. Jesus exercises a demon, the Pharisees trash talk Jesus, he responds, and then they demand a sign. Got all that? Okay. So let's look into these verses and see how this all unfolds. Verse 38, right off the top. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, we already brought up how these religious leaders, they have this show-me state of mind. Jesus has already shut them down after they tried to put him and his ministry down. Yet they can't let this interaction go. 
They have to, uh, their hearts are stubborn. They, they feel like they have to get the last word. They have to throw down the trump card or be the ones to drop the mic. Okay, teacher, if you're a good tree and you bear good fruit, then prove it. Show us a sign. When we see this demand for a sign, what exactly is it that the Pharisees are asking for? Because we see God do signs and wonders in the Old Testament. The Gospel of John is literally structured around seven signs that Jesus does or says. The book of Acts records the Holy Spirit doing signs through the apostles. So clearly signs are not universally bad or universally off limits for God to do. Now, of course, we do have to make sure we're looking at the context of those signs. Uh, How are those passages of Scripture, how do they use the term and portray the purpose and the meaning? In the Old Testament, maybe the most well-known sign-related story is when, in the book of Judges, Gideon puts out this fleece on the floor In the story of Judges 6, God calls this guy named Gideon to deliver his people from, um, you know, their enemies. They're being oppressed. And, you know, famously, Gideon responds to God, you know, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry all on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said." So he goes to bed, he wakes up, and it's just like that. And then the next day he's like, actually, can you do the reverse today? Yeah, and uh, the ground is covered in dew, but the fleece is dry. And now for, for whatever reason, however this story has like made its way into our imaginations, modern Christians, we, we read this story and we kind of think about it positively, and then we go away and we think of like, okay, so like, what are the fleeces that I can lay out to discern God's will for my life? Even though, like, in this incident in Judges, this is depicted as Gideon's primary character flaw. God has already, like, Gideon acknowledges it in, this, in these verses. As you have said, twice, he says, God, as you've already told me, but now I need you to give me a sign to prove it. And, like, God's already done some crazy signs in that same chapter. On the other hand of this, you know, sign conversation. The Gospel of John in the book of Acts, the signs of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the apostles serve a specific purpose. John ends his Gospel by saying this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These New Testament signs that Jesus does, they serve the purpose of confirming the testimony of the apostles that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah who had come to rescue God's people and God's world. And then as we read through the book of Acts, we see these miraculous signs. They always accompany uh, like a, a barrier being broken down. Whenever the gospel reaches a new place and a new people group hear about the good news of Jesus for the first time, Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, ends of the earth. Anytime this border, this barrier gets broken down, 
and the message is proclaimed, we see these signs go with it to confirm the testimony. So, what are we dealing with here in this passage when we read the Pharisees' requests? When they demand a sign, here's what they're asking for, specifically. A one-off, on-demand, token miracle that fits neatly into their specific parameters. They're asking for this one-off, on-demand, token miracle that kind of fits within the parameters that they have in mind. And based on Jesus' response to them, uh, I think we can determine that their demand is more like the faithless request of Gideon than, you know, the ones we see in the New Testament. And in fact, like Gideon's case, Jesus has already done a miracle in this interaction. That's how this chapter starts. That's how this interaction starts, is with an exorcism. And they've already rejected that. Hence, Jesus' sharp reply in verse 39. Look at it with me. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Seems kind of strong, doesn't it? Evil and adulterous to ask for a sign? Why? What is Jesus saying here? Throughout the Bible, adultery is commonly used as an analogy for the spiritual drift of God's people. God's people were in a a covenant with him, a special and unique relationship, one that was designed to be exclusive, one that demanded full allegiance. And so, he, you know, he was their God, they were his people. This is the demand for a sign, it reflects a wandering heart that is looking to have, you know, all the bases covered. It's the double-minded person that James warns us about in his letter. It's the heart that is not fully bought in, not fully committed, because it's still looking around to see what other options are available. It's the kind of heart if brought into a marriage, may eventually lead a spouse to cheat, that wandering eye. What the Pharisees are doing here, it's evil because it comes from their evil hearts. They're not actually looking for God with this request. I know this may sound like the sentiment of of a genuine seeker, but really this is more like a demand from a doubter. Last year at Karis, Going through Matthew, we read through, preached through about a dozen different miracles that Jesus had performed uh, from that, you know, the end of the Sermon on the Mount until now. And around the corner, in so many of those stories, the Pharisees are, you know, just waiting, waiting to pop out, ready to critique, question, deny who Jesus was presenting himself to be. So don't read their question here as a good faith attempt to understand. In reality, there's no miracle that Jesus could have done for them that would have convinced them. Because they weren't looking for a reason to believe, they were looking for another opportunity to disbelieve, if that makes sense. If you haven't seen the British TV show, Doctor Who, It's about this time-traveling, space-exploring, humanoid alien called the Doctor. Now, the Doctor always has a a human companion from the UK. They go on adventures all over the place, travel through space, travel through time, all across the galaxy. 
But at some point, every season, you know, they end up back on earth because something bad is happening. Something bad is happening, and it reveals to the rest of humanity that, yeah, aliens are real, and they do stuff in the world around them. But after every conflict, despite what people had just seen and heard and experienced, the main characters talk to their friends and neighbors, and they just say, oh, no, no, that... That couldn't have been aliens because aliens aren't real. Like, they just saw a spaceship fly away. Like, what else was it? Despite what they had been told, despite what they had seen and experienced, they already had their hearts set on the fact that aliens did not and could not exist. So they found a way to deny the truth. It was a hallucination. It was a military experiment. It was... A blah, 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 a light show, something, you know, something. It was an earthquake. As humans, we, we like to think of ourselves as being rational beings. And we do. We, we have rationality, for sure. But we're not creatures who are primarily driven by our minds. I hope that doesn't come across as insulting. Instead, we're driven by the desires and convictions of our hearts. That's our primary motivator. It's a truth that's evident in modern times. It's a truth that's evident throughout the Bible. Perhaps no story illustrates this better than Pharaoh's experience of the ten plagues in Egypt. Moses goes to deliver God's people, says to Pharaoh, hey, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, nah, I'm going to pass on that. In response, God sends plagues to punish Pharaoh, to punish Egypt, flies, frogs, darkness, disease, and more. And after each plague, Pharaoh is presented with another opportunity to let God's people go. Yet every time he digs his heels in, he refuses, his heart grows harder, and the suffering in his land increases. Caitlin was pointing this out to me as we were talking about the passage today. Like if we were primarily rational beings— if that was how we made most of our decisions in life, it should not have taken Pharaoh, it wouldn't take most people, if we were truly rational, to get all the way to plague number 10. The rational person would have yielded to God's overwhelming power early on. That's the rational decision. But the hard-hearted, the heart-driven Pharaoh simply will not give in until it's way too late. And so with that being said, Jesus actually does decide to tell the Pharisees about a sign. Though again, this is not one that they will accept. It's not one that will convince them in the end. Verses 39 through 40. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In the same way that God does acquiesce to Gideon by giving him the sign that he asks for, Jesus says, actually, you know what? I will give you a sign. And then he reminds him of Jonah Jonah's story is this classic Old Testament tale, a prophet called to preach to the city of Nineveh, this notoriously evil city. 
Jonah's like, nah, I think I'll pass. Instead, he hops on a boat and literally goes in the opposite direction of the world. So to get his attention, God sends a storm. While he's on the boat, Jonah tells the crew that they're in danger because he is running from God. He knows what's going on. He's not under any delusions. He knows he's disobeying God. And this is, the storm is from God. He tells the crew, hey, throw me overboard and the storm will stop. And so they do. And it does. But God's not done with Jonah because he sends this giant fish to swallow Jonah up and keep him from drowning and actually transport him closer to Nineveh. Now, there's a lot of interesting parallels in the story of Jonah and the story of Jesus calming a storm on the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus tells us that this specific sign is about Jonah spending three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Jesus says, this is going to mirror what happens to me. I'm going to be I'm going to die, and I'm going to be buried. I'm going to be in the grave for three days before rising again. Same way that Jonah spits, or the fish spits out Jonah, the grave is going to spit Jesus back out. So finally in our passage, Jesus closes with a stern warning to the Pharisees, which, man, I feel like every time I have a passage from Matthew, I say that. Let's look at these last couple of verses before we move on to some points of application. Verses 41 and 42 say, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This is another theme that we've repeated as we've gone through Matthew. With greater revelation comes a greater accountability. Jesus gives the example of the Ninevites first. Again, Nineveh is the capital city of the ancient Assyrian Empire this notoriously brutal kingdom. The ancient Assyrians, they would line the highways in and out of their cities with the impaled bodies of criminals. They would skin alive people who tried to rebel against their empire. Worst of all, according to Veggie Tales, they would slap people with fishes. <laughs> in the Old Testament... It's the Assyrians who are the ones to come in and just utterly annihilate the northern kingdom of Israel. They destroy it. They take the people. They send them out across the world. God gives Jonah a message of repentance to preach to the Ninevites. Turn away from your evil or be destroyed. That's what the word repent means. It just means to turn away. Maybe we can empathize with Jonah a little bit. On the one hand, he was probably terrified, an Israelite prophet, to show his face among those people, knowing what could happen to him, knowing what they did to his people, knowing what they did to people who didn't like them. 
And then on the other hand, not wanting those people to repent. He wanted them to get the judgment that they deserved. But nonetheless, Jonah eventually does find his way to the Assyrian capital. And he preaches the shortest sermon of all time. 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. That's it. That's the sermon. Some of you guys are like, I wish we had sermons like that. <laughs> he actually never even mentions the God of Israel in his sermon. He actually never warns them to repent. He just says, he doesn't even include the repentance part. He's just like, hey, 40 days, y'all are toast. But once word of their impending destruction reaches the king, he, d- he sends out a, a message to the city that every living creature, human and animal, they're going to repent and mourn and fast over the evil that they had done. And now Jesus goes after the Pharisees. He says, hey, at the end of time, when God renders his final judgments on people, the Ninevites are going to stand up and be the ones to condemn you. Yeesh. Some of history's greatest villains are going to be in the jury that sentences you. Why? Well, because when they heard the worst, shortest, most hopeless sermon of all time from one of the most rebellious and resentful preachers of all time, they turned away from their evil and they turned towards God. Meanwhile, the Pharisees had seen miracle after miracle from God's own son and rejected them one after the other. They had received an even greater glimpse into what God was doing and what God wanted from them, yet they continued to turn away from him. Next, Jesus draws on this example of the queen of the south. Who is this? What's going on here? Probably Jesus is referring to the story in 1 Kings when the queen of Sheba pays a visit to King Solomon. The region of Sheba is probably in the the southernmost part of the Arabian Peninsula. Maybe it's in southern Egypt. But in 1 Kings chapter 10, word travels far and wide that the great wisdom of Solomon, or that Solomon has received this great wisdom from God. King Solomon used that wisdom to usher in this golden age for the people of Israel. And this queen decided that she needed to come check that out for herself, see if the rumors were true. So she visits Israel, and she brings her longest list of questions to Solomon. I teach a couple classes of sixth grade Bible on the side, and uh, I have a, a question jar in my class. It's like, if a kid has a Bible question, it's like, off topic from the lesson, but it's still a good Bible question, I'm like, put that in the jar. I've got them all laid out on my desk right now. I kind of imagine this being like one of those moments where it's like, I've got, here's a jar, here's my toughest questions, I'm going to put you to the test. And Solomon passes every test. At the end of the passage, it says the, the queen just had nothing left to say. And so they exchange their treasures, gold and spices and wood and instruments, and she praises God. Jesus uses her as an example to condemn the Pharisees too. Not that the queen is portrayed as like a wicked Ninevite. She's not a villain when she visits Israel. But she is an outsider. She's a Gentile. She's from a faraway land. 
Presumably, she didn't have any reason to know or respect or experience God or his word. But when she hears rumor of a man who has received the wisdom of God, she packs her bags and travels across the desert to experience it. On the flip side, Jesus has revealed to the Pharisees in their own backyard, but they can't be bothered. They continue to express disbelief. So church, where does that leave us today? We've examined Jesus' teaching here. Now you're wondering, you know, what relevance, if any, does this have for me today? Great question. I think as we read through this interaction with the Pharisees, we can see three points of application. One devotional, one emotional, and one evangelistic. So let's think through these. On the devotional level, Jesus isn't just hodgepodging together some interesting Old Testament stories to make his point. He's actually showing us how to read the Bible. Hopefully you guys grabbed one of these um, field guides. They're on the resource table. Kevin and Joy put those together. It always takes a lot of work. Uh, Maybe you downloaded another Bible reading plan or study plan for this year. Uh, Either way, you're seven days in today, and so you're probably looking at, you know, the early to middle parts of the book of Genesis. Maybe Job, depending on the reading plan that you have outlined. Reading the Old Testament, it can be difficult, I know. There are characters, cultures, laws, contexts that are even more foreign to us than what we find in the New Testament. But let me encourage you. Do you want to know the best way to understand the New Testament? Understand the Old Testament. And Jesus here gives us one of the keys to doing that well. He draws on the stories of Jonah visiting the Ninevites, the Queen of Sheba visiting Solomon, but not just as illustrations. As he wraps up both of those references, he declares, Behold, something greater is here. To reference that famous quote from Pastor Matt Chandler, the Bible is not about you, the Bible is about Jesus. And that's exactly what we see affirmed here in the Gospel of Matthew. All the characters, all the laws, all the storylines, all the promises that we read in the Old Testament, they find their ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. When we keep that in mind as we read his word, that'll open our eyes to all the ways that those potentially difficult passages come together and what they mean for us today as Jesus' followers. Jesus is greater. That is our interpretive lens. The story of Jonah is great. It's a classic. It's iconic. There's a reason why it's in every children's Bible. But when Jesus arrives, something even greater than Jonah is here. Jonah preaches to the Ninevites that God's forgiveness is available to them if they will repent from their evil. Jesus' message is to all peoples, and it's that he has accomplished, through his death on the cross, the means by which God forgives when you turn from sin and trust in him. Jesus is greater. When Solomon asks God for wisdom, God gives him wisdom in abundance. He's known for being the wisest man in the Bible. He's so wise, and for a time, he leads God's people so well that the rulers of the other nations feel compelled to check out what's going on in Israel. 
the Bible tells us that King Solomon was rich in God's wisdom, but it also tells us that Jesus is the very wisdom of God by which he made the world and sustains his creation. Behold, something greater is here. Emotionally, this interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees reveals again that we are heart-driven beings more than we are mind-driven beings. I read this book several years ago by a psychologist named Jonathan Haidt about the nature of human convictions and moral foundations. It was super interesting. You know, this guy, he's not a follower of Jesus, but as he studied and experimented and worked scientifically in God's world, he came to conclusions that were resonant with what we see in God's word. He wanted to answer the question, why do seemingly honest and genuine folks have such sharp disagreements over issues like religion and politics? It's a question that I've heard from genuine, good-hearted Christians as well. If we both believe in Jesus and want to do our best to understand and apply his word, why do we seem to come to different conclusions about the way to do things? Why, when you were visiting with your parents and relatives over the holidays, did they listen to your entirely reasonable, logically coherent, and heavily footnoted thoughts on the economy, the climate, the healthcare and education systems, yet remain unconvinced? Spoiler alert, it's the same reason you were unconvinced by their arguments. One of the things that the psychologist concluded, and again, I think that what we see in our passage this morning I think, it's, I think it's something that we see in our passage and it's attested to throughout Scripture, is that we are primarily heart-driven creatures. He describes our brains like a guy riding an elephant. The guy on top of the elephant is our rational mind and the elephant is like our heart, our will, our emotions. And while the rider on top can influence the direction of the elephant, to some extent, you know, we're not irrational beings. But at the end of the day, one man cannot control a whole elephant if the elephant has decided it is already set on what it's going to do. The Pharisees say, show us a sign. Prove to the rider on top that you are who you say you are. If we see a sign, it will be undeniable that you are the Messiah. Yet the elephant, their hearts, wills, emotions, are already set against this fact and will not yield or turn in a different direction. Now, when we think about something like this, it might become really easy to see in others, right? Oh, that's why they weren't convinced by my impeccable argument. They're simply too emotional. But that's not the application I want you to take away. Instead of looking to others, this is actually your invitation to look at yourself first. That's what Jesus told us to do in his Sermon on the Mount, right? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This application point is not figure out a way to appeal to your debate partner's emotions, but rather to be vigilant in evaluating your own heart, your own will, your own emotions, seeing that they are following after Jesus, desiring, loving, caring about the things that he has called you to pursue, love, desire, and care about. Because at the end of the day, 
Jesus is the only one who's able to tame that wild elephant that is our heart. All the beasts of the field, every human heart is under his gracious and transforming rule. Finally, final application point, evangelistically. God's Holy Spirit is the only one who can bring about heart change. And this is actually very closely related with that previous point. They're kind of like a two sides of the same coin kind of thing. When we're sharing our faith with someone who's not a follower of Jesus, we must keep in mind that we are not the ones who save people or change people. We're just messengers. In speaking of Jesus, I like how pastor and author Jared Wilson puts it. He says, I'm not the guy with all the answers or the guy who has everything together, but I can introduce you to that guy. Before, during, after, we talk to our friends, our neighbors, our enemies about the good news of King Jesus. We must be in prayer that the Holy Spirit would take that message and make it alive in their hearts. If he doesn't do that, then we will not see new spiritual life or a changed heart. Benga did a really excellent job in his sermon last week bringing that point home for us. It's the Spirit of God that gives new life. Now, by me saying this, I'm not wanting to diminish or dismiss this discipline that we call apologetics, when we utilize, where we utilize philosophical, logical, historical arguments to defend the claims of our faith. Apologetics are super important for followers of Jesus to know because, well, number one, it's part of how we honor God with our mind. And number two, it's important to defend the truth that he's given us from people who would actively, actively attack against it. And I know we've got more than a few folks here at Cars who love apologetics, and I'm grateful for their passions and their gifting and how they use that to honor God. And God does use our apologetic efforts, too, to move in people's minds as he shapes their hearts. At the end of the day, though, what what I'm trying to emphasize is that no one is debated into salvation. No one is footnoted into God's kingdom. No one is argued into relationship with Jesus. We may well be able to change someone's mind, but what's required is actually deeper than that. What's required is heart change, and only God can truly change someone's heart. So, we go. We go engaging with anyone who will listen to us with the gospel message that Jesus is the rightful king over all creation, that he is bringing God's righteousness and justice into our world, That sin, being in opposition to Jesus, is a bad place to be. But that through Jesus' life and death and resurrection has made it possible to be on his side, to be in his family, to trust in him, to put their faith in him, to pledge their allegiance to him. Ultimately, to have their hearts and minds and whole lives transformed by his love and his grace. Carter's Church, that is the gospel message that we get to share and that the Holy Spirit sinks into people's souls. Pray together with me. God, we praise you this morning and we thank you for the blessing of your word to us. God, as we read these chapters and verses and we see Jesus interact with people who disbelieve in him, may that cause us to reflect critically on our own hearts God, would you reveal to us the places where we are hard-hardened, hard-hearted, or resistant to you? 
God, for your followers this morning, would you strengthen our faith by your spirit? God, for those of us here who would not consider themselves your followers, God, I pray that your spirit would give them the gift of faith for the first time today. God, would you put the truth of your gospel deep into the hearts of all of us here today, that it would grow into a life of love and loyalty towards you. Lord, as we continue to worship you around your table, would you grant us unity by your spirit? Would you help us to sense greater union with you, as well as experience the closeness and family that you've promised to your people? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.